Okay, welcome back. This is lesson two in our Bible basics. It's called The One Eternal God, and in your book, you should find that chapter. If you don't see it, you can always download the entire Bible basics. It's like 35 pages or so, and this is a simplified course. This is not exhaustive. Just as a side note, my philosophy as a pastor is you you use Bible knowledge when you need it, in a sense. So I can fill you up, fill you up, fill you up, but it's kind of like getting a mattress in some degree. You probably, if you purchased a mattress in your life, you don't know anything about mattresses. You go to the store, and it's totally overwhelming as they talk about 800 different options. So you have to do some research. So you use that knowledge when you need it. And the same thing is true, I think, in the Bible. A basic fundamental knowledge to understand like what's right and wrong is important. But when you get to the, kind of the finer issues, say you have a parent who's on life support, how do you handle that? What's ethical? What's not ethical? You talk to your pastor, do some research, but you have a general basis as we go through this course that what's right and what's wrong according to Scripture. So we're in, in One Eternal God. We're going to talk about a few things before I actually get into the lesson. Uh, the first one is natural knowledge. Natural knowledge is... There's two ways you can naturally know about God. So people wonder, like, why aren't there more atheists in the world? Well, there's two ways you can understand about God. The first one is by nature. You can take a look out of the planet. You can discover a lot of things about God by nature. So this is the God who created the world. So he's very wise. He's intelligent. He's, things are beautiful. He's artistic. Uh, things are complex, but at the same time very simple. And all these amazing... So he's smart, and he's wise, and powerful. All these things can be discovered by watching the Discovery Channel or just looking outside your window. However, it's not from that that you get this sense of accountability to God. So in every culture that makes up, A, they recognize a God, there's no atheistic culture. And B, they they recognize a God and they recognize there's some accountability to that God. And so whenever a religion is made up, and there's plenty of made-up religions like Hindu and Muslim and Mormon and Jehovah Witness and the countless others. Whenever they make it up, the basic premise of that religion is I do the right things and God will bless me, God will reward me, God will love me. That's very counterintuitive as we spent time. That's intuitive, I should say. And what's counterintuitive is what the actual gospel is. The gospel says that only in Christ are we forgiven. The gospel says that only uh, what God has done is forgiveness. So it's not what you've earned. It's not something you deserve. It's not a reward. Instead, it's an inheritance. It's a gift of God. It's uh, not a reward. It's not your wages. But instead, God, out of his love, has given you this special blessing. So we're going to look at, we're going to look at in this section some attributes about God so you can discover that. Where do you discover this sense that you have to appease God? Just naturally, there's this urge to say, I've got to do things right for God. That urge comes from your conscience. Now, your conscience is not like Jimmy the Cricket. It's not like a part of your brain. Instead, the law is written on your heart, and you have this voice that kind of speaks to it. So the Pinocchio movie is not actually terrible, because it is almost like Jiminy Cricket. That's this voice that says, hey, that's right, that's wrong. Now the problem with conscience the problem with conscience is this you you can teach your conscience or you can bend or bold uh, bend your conscience over time to convince you that right things are wrong and wrong things are right so I use a couple examples one 
when I played football for a small college, and we played against a team that I believe was very conservative Baptist, I believe, called Maranatha, Pentecostal or something like that, but they're very conservative. The women wore these, like, 10-pound jean skirts that went down to their ankles. And as far as I understood, they believed that you should never drink alcohol, and they believe that you shouldn't dance. Now, the, the theory is this. You can't find that in Scripture. But the theory is this. It's very hard to get drunk if you don't drink alcohol. And it's pretty hard to have sex if you never dance close to someone and get, like, kind of these feelings as awkward teens most of us have gone through with, uh, like, yeah, you get clammy hands and you don't know what to do and it's very awkward because you're, you're dealing kind of with this wooing of the opposite sex. Well, that theory, over time, even though it's not a biblical one in the sense that you can't find a passage that says never dance, you can't find a passage that says don't drink, it says don't get drunk, it says don't have sex outside of marriage, I mean, that's very clear. So what happens, though, over time is the individuals that go to that school, do you think it bothered their conscience if they did go dance? You're, I know you're thinking of Footloose. But would it bother their conscience? I think it would. And would it bother their conscience if they turn 21, that's perfectly legal, and they have a drink? I think it would, because they've been conditioned, in the sense they've conditioned their conscience, to tell them that something that is okay is no longer okay. Well, how does that... That's not usually how it goes. Usually how the conscience goes is this. I use the example of office supplies. So you work in an office, and you do some work from home, and your office supply policy is very clear. You don't take office supplies. Well, you work at home, and you think, well, I do work at home. I do some brainstorming, so I'll just take some Post-it notes, and that'll help me. You don't want to buy some pens, or your kid needs some pens for school, and you just take some pens, and you're like, okay, that's fine. You say, well, I do some printing at home, so then I'll just bring a ream of paper once in a while because I don't feel like spending $5 for the company. And then you run out of ink, and ink is kind of expensive, especially if you have like this inkjet printer. Of course, it's the only one with ink. And so that's cost. So you go to the supply and you take some of the ink because in your mind you're saying, "Hey, I actually well maybe I should just take a printer home." And they got an extra computer, so I bring an extra computer. My kids mostly play with it, but you know I do some business on it. And then I've got a printer from work that supplies the ink and the paper. And soon, like you're rolling down the office with this copy machine. How does that work? Well, the policy is very clear. You don't take office supplies home, but over time you condition your conscience to kind of be quiet. What is it that wakes your conscience up, or as the theologians say, pricks your conscience? A reiteration of the policy. So if your boss came in, hey, we're running out of office supplies. I don't know who's doing it, but remember, our policy is absolutely no office supplies go home. Suddenly that wakes your conscience up and you it's kind of deconditioned instantly and you feel a sense of guilt and things like that. So that's how we function in life. We, Without God's revelation in scripture, all we know is that there is a God and that he should be appeased. The second thing is, we're just going to define two terms. This really isn't in your book. This is bonus material. Woo! Right, we're going to define two terms. The first one is atheist. There aren't a lot of atheists. That means someone believes that there is a no theist God. So there absolutely is no God. More common, and not all that common, is an agnostic. Agnostics believe, well, I should say, um, nosco like, comes from knowledge, like science, you get uh, that same idea. So A means no, so they don't know if there's a God. 
And you, that's where most atheists really fit. They're not ready to say, absolutely, there's no God whatsoever. They're saying, you know, I don't know if there's a God. Looking at the, the body of evidence, I'm not convinced. Well, there's really two kinds of agnostics. The first one says, I'm not sure if a God exists whatsoever. And then another one says, I'm not sure. I think there is a God, but I'm not sure if God speaks through revealed knowledge, like the Quran or the Bible, or is it the Hindu writings, or, you know, what is it? So I'm not even sure which is the right answer. Either one, uh, the Bible, God never makes an argument for himself. God never tries to convince people that he exists, and said, this is in your notes. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's about as harsh as the Bible gets, but he says, you're kind of a moron if you don't think there's a God. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we see a glimmer of this triune God we'll talk about in a minute. But the point is, okay, there is a God. Psalm 14 says so. You're an idiot if you don't think there is. Then it says, Shema Israel, Adonai Eroheinu, Adonai Echad, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's not all kinds of gods, there's one God. And then Isaiah 44. That is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first, I am the last. Apart from me, and here's the key part, there is no God. People worship all kinds of stuff, but God is saying, listen, apart from me, there really isn't another God. So something to write in the blank, I would write, there is only one God. However, to make matters kind of, to make sure they don't line up with our human brain, which is so difficult, we read 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we see three persons. So one God, but it says the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, that's pretty clear, but is there something more clear? Well, there is. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. So Jesus is now taking his disciples to the top of uh, the Mount of Olives. He's about to be um, taken away, ascend into heaven. But before he goes, he says, here's my instructions. Like, this is his dying words in a sense. I mean, he's not dead. But go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, one, the Son, two, and the Holy Spirit, three. Three persons. There are three persons. You could put that in the blank. And theologians struggled with this, so we just made up a word. The word is triune. You've probably heard that term before. Tri meaning like tricycle, means three, and una, which means one. Or the Spanish uno, the game, means one. So we have triune, three and one. Do you get it? When I was a kid, probably not, you shouldn't really. If your mind like goes, oh yeah, no problem, you're probably thinking of this in terms that aren't biblical. When I was a kid, I had a book that had and I don't even know the right terms, it was on the triune God, and it was like an apple. There's one apple, but the apple has three parts. That's kind of how they took it. There's the outer flesh, and then whatever, the inner fruit. Then the core. So, yeah, that's just a glimmer into my childhood. Some people have said, like, H2O. H2O is one substance one element, or no, it's not one element, but it's one substance, but it has multiple forms. It could be a solid, a liquid, or a gas. 
every little illustration limps to some degree. None of them are going to be perfect, but you get this idea that says, okay, I'll just step back and say, I don't get it, but I'm okay with that. So the question is this, if you can't understand something about God, does that mean that it can't be true? Well, of course not. Like, I like diesel engines. And uh, I like the fuel efficiency. I like kind of the sound of them. And I have a rudimentary understanding of how diesel engines work, not a very extensive definition. So I could try to explain to you how a diesel engine works. If you really knew diesels, like you were a mechanic, you would roll your eyes and say, like, you have no idea what you're talking about. If you're like a medical personnel, and I start talking about, I know some things medical, but I just start talking. At some point, you're going to be like, you know, how about you pump the brakes on that? Because I don't think you really know what you're talking about. Same thing is true with God. On this earth, we do our best to try and understand God by his own description. Sometimes that description is one that we can't understand. Does that mean he's not God? Absolutely not. And Luther said, when you, I think it was Luther, who said, when you understand God, when you bring God kind of to your level and you understand him, he's no longer God. I can explain to you in my own terms what a diesel engine is. That does not mean that's how a diesel engine functions. There's people around the world who have worked so hard to pull God down to their level, but that does not mean that's who God is and how God functions. They can say, here's how I understand God. Well, that's fine, but God is the one who gets to define who God is, if that makes sense. He says it this way in Isaiah through the prophet, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The, the bottom of the page is a very brief description in about ten passages. Usually we spend a bit of time here, so that's what we'll do. I'll read the passage, and then we'll just talk about some attributes that we see God do. So the first passage that we're going to look at is in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. And again, there's all kinds of passages that you could... This is just a select few to notice some of the attributes that make God unique in this world. So the first one is Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2. And again, you can just look in your own Bible if you'd like. But if you're your, uh, if you driving or something like that here, you can listen to it as I read it. So this is Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. This is a psalm written by Moses. Not a lot of the psalms are written by Moses. But he writes this. Lord, you have been my dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The point that we're pulling from this one comes from the last section where it says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. The point we're looking at is that God is eternal. For me, this is the most difficult part on the front end. I can understand, or I can get my brain around something lasting forever. That makes sense to me. But the idea that God never had a beginning just is mind-boggling to me. Second passage that we're going to look at is from Malachi. This is the last of the prophets. So when you look at the Old Testament, written over a 1,500-year period, not quite 1,500 years, so 1,500, 1,100-year uh, period. So 1,500 to about 400. This book was written at about 400. And the prophet writes, uh, about God, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. 
And the point is, you and I change all the time. You and I are different all the time. And who, who we are today is not who we were 20 years ago. But God is absolutely the same. And when God says he's a loving covenant God, as we'll see, for the people of Israel, that's the same God who loves and cares for us. A third passage that we have, we have a number of passages, is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 through 26. And he asks, this is the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, no one, not one of them is missing. Now this passage kind of brings up a Latin word. This is what theologians call it. It's called omnipotent. And it comes from the Latin omni, which means everything. O-M-N-I. And then potent, you can imagine like potent drugs. And you may remember, it was a terrible car. It was called the Omni, the Dodge Omni. We had the Plymouth version called the Plymouth Horizon. So essentially, Dodge is saying, this is the Dodge everything. And there's also a Huffy bike, if you remember, around that time. There was a Huffy bike that was blue, like white, with blue, kind of Carolina blue trim. And it weighed like 50 pounds. And it was a terrible bike. But again, this is called the Omni. This is the everything. The way that we use it in this instance, we're talking about God's great power and great power and mighty strength that set essentially the stars in their places, talks about God's power. And the term we use is all-powerful. God really is all-powerful. A fourth one we're going to look at is Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. Uh, This is written by David. The last one was written by Moses. And he talks about God's knowledge. And he asked this question. He said, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And that's true. God, not only is he all-powerful, omnipotent, but he's omniscient is the Latin word that we use, that God knows everything. And just think for a second. How is that encouraging and how is that intimidating? Let's start with the intimidating fact. When, when you talk about hiding things from people, it is not that difficult. And I, when I talk about sin, it often is compartmentalized. You're struggling with someone. You can kind of put that in your little world of your life and no one has to know about it. Like that's me time. You know, God gets things on Sunday, for example. But th- this is me time. I get to look at certain entertainment that I want to look at. I want to talk a certain way when I'm with my friends, or I want to drink a certain way on the weekend. All of these things are compartmentalizing your life. God wants your whole life. And the truth is, God knows your whole life, no matter what you do to try and hide it. But at the same time, how is that a great comfort when you think that God knows everything about me? Well, of course, there are days when we don't feel so great. There are days we don't feel so confident. There's days that we don't feel so saved. There's days we don't feel so loved. There's days we don't feel like loving. But not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are, God comes to us in love. And I think that's where the encouragement is. He knows your deepest fears, your deepest worries, the ones you're afraid even to share with your most dear friends. Uh, The next one we're going to look at is 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. It says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. 
for he cannot disown himself. And I think that one also is an encouragement, talking about the faithless um, faithfulness of God. God is always there no matter what, and when he says he's going to do something, he's, that's integrity, he says he's actually going to do it. I just listened to a speaker talking about what are four things you need to do to have people listen to you, and he used the acronym HAIL. Honesty, authenticity, and integrity, and i got to think of the L. Love is the fourth one. So honesty, you need to be totally forthright with people as you speak and share important things. And authenticity, we've been hearing that more and more in our generation. That It matters if just being yourself, as one person said, stand in your own truth. And three is integrity, which is talking about this faithfulness. It's talking about doing what you say you're going to do. God is like that. God does exactly what he says he's going to do every single time. Every single promise is fulfilled, and God never backs down. So we move to a, a couple more passages that we're going to look at, and I'm going to do it in three ways. First, these are bonus ones. Leviticus 19.2 talks about God's perfection and his holiness. It says, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is absolutely perfect. The result of that is nothing can be in his presence that is not perfection. When you hear about uh, human beings being by perfect angels, they're in holy terror. And the same thing would troop for us. If we would go into God's presence without being perfect, this would be utterly destroy us. The second passage, though, talks about God's love. And this is kind of the John 3.16. It talks about God's mercy. This is the gospel message in the Old Testament. So it's in Exodus chapter 34 where... Moses, who is the leader of the people, just a little background, Moses says, Abraham had a son Isaac, Isaac has a son Jacob, and Jacob has a son Joseph. And Joseph moves all the people into Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, God calls Moses to lead them out. Now, you might know the story of Moses where, as a baby, he was sent down the river, and the queen picked him up, and he was raised in the palace. Of the queen, the pharaoh, I should say the princess of of Egypt, until he's 40 years old, in a fit of rage, knowing that he is Hebrew, he murders an Egyptian who is abusing, at the time, the Jewish slaves. And he doesn't like this one bit. Well, he has to flee. And he flees for 40 years. And he's 80 years old when he comes back, and God calls him to lead the people out. This is the same man. But in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord explains who he is. He says, he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord. And notice, probably in your translation, it's capital L-O-R-D. That's a unique word. We don't even know how they pronounced it. So some people say Yahweh or Jehovah, but it's capital L-O-R-D. It's a unique word. So he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. This is a reminder. This is a reminder that our God is perfectly merciful, but at the same time, he punishes sin. So at the same time, he's just, which is our next passage. Perhaps you're wondering, like, how do you explain a loving God that punishes for multiple generations? 
the best example in, in a negative sense, the, the clearest example, I should say, that I can think of is if someone is a believer and they hear God's word or someone hears God's word and they reject God's word, if they have children and grandchildren, most likely they are affected by that decision that they said, hey, I don't want to have anything to do with God. Now you see generation after generation that has nothing to do with God versus through the Holy Spirit, someone who knows the, the word of God, that this is passed down in a legacy to the next generation. So our final passage that we're going to look at is Deuteronomy chapter 32, also written by Moses. It says, he is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. How exactly, and this is kind of a key question, how exactly can you handle hearing that God is just and God is loving? How does, how does that mix? In other words, if God is perfectly just, that means he has to punish sin because he said he would do that. We have sinned. We deserve the wages of sin, which is death. God also says that he cares for us. How, is exactly, how exactly can you see those two things meet? Well, the answer is in Jesus. In Jesus, God's justice is met and the punishment that is meant for us is put on him. So sins are paid for, sins are punished. No one just kind of winks and, and pushes it under this cosmic rug. Instead, God does pay for those sins. And we see God as loving because he loves you enough not to make you pay that payment because you can't do it. But instead, he takes the loss so that you can live with him. We're going to look and kind of unpack this section, and the place that we're going to look is in John chapter 1. So if you turn your page, we just have a, a little bit left today, we're going to look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1 says this, and when you think of, just to put it in perspective, John is the last of the Gospels to be written, so he kind of fills in some of the gaps, and he's got kind of Eastern thinking in the sense that it somewhat seems like circular reasoning to those of us who are Western thinkers, and it's very logical, like A, Roman numeral 1, and then A, and then B, C, D, go all the way down. He's trying to make, it's not even chronological, we don't believe in all the parts, but it's setting things up so that it's making main themes, that Jesus is life, that Jesus is bread, that Jesus is the answer. So this is John chapter 1. It's kind of a mystery as we look at the word logos, and logos is the name for word. So it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So we're trying to determine what this Word is. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. This is not John the author, but instead John the baptizer. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. And here's the answer. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So after looking at John chapter 1, we, we recognize that that word obviously is Jesus, and John the baptizer came to testify him. It says that his own people did not receive him. The Jewish people rejected him. But that didn't mean he was not authentic and the right Savior. So if you put something in the blank, it would say to save us, Jesus, the second person of the triune God, became a human being. So in order to win eternal life for us, Jesus had to be a man for two basic reasons. And keep in mind the things that we're going to look at today are kind of nuts and bolts background. Why did Jesus have to be who he is? But at the same time, this is still kind of a mystery. So we can't press this too far, but I think far enough to understand why God did what he did. One of the clues that we get is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, and here's the key part, born under law to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. The picture there, of course, is that in order to take someone's place, you have to live by their rules in a sense. So we broke the rules that we had when we became human beings. We're human beings born under the law that God has given us. We broke that law. Now, someone to live in our place has to be born into that law. As God, God is not born into laws. So Jesus had to become a human being in order to be regulated, in a sense, to be under the obligation of following the law. We could give an example like this, uh, peewee football. Now, I played little college football. This is not big time. But I played a little college football, and now I coach peewee second graders. I'm pretty sure that I would completely dominate second graders at football. But why is it that I can't do that? Well, of course, it's not legal. You have to be seven years old to play seven-year-old football, and now I'm 30, 38, I think. I think Maybe I'm 39. So I'm not old enough, right? And, I, and I'm not young enough that, to be able to do this, so I don't fit under the obligations. The Little League World Series, Taiwan, I think it was, got in trouble one time because they had someone who was not 12. You can only be 9 to 12 years old. If you don't fit in those parameters, you can't play the Little League World Series. The same thing is true with Jesus. Jesus, just as God, can't show up and just do his thing and then leave unless he is necessary, that he's supposed to follow the laws. So that's why we emphasize why, what did Jesus have to do? Live under the laws. The second reason he became a human being is Hebrews 2, chapter 14. So it explains this, the writer of the Hebrews explains it this way. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So what's the benefit of that? So that by his death, we might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So the regulation, the wages of sin was death. That means for someone to completely take our place, they had to live the perfection we couldn't do. That was live under the law. And someone had to be able to die in our place. And in order to do that, God can't die. Jesus had to become both true God and true man at the same time. That's the best way to think about it. So does that mean Jesus 
a man was no longer God? I think that's a good question. An old illustration, older, would be City of Angels with Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan. They're so in love that he wants to lay aside his angelness, I don't know, angelic qualities, I guess you'd say, and become a human being so that they could truly love. It's a story. In a little bit more modern example, this is maybe five years ago, something like that. Not sure when you're listening to this, but if you've ever watched Twilight, this is a book series that was uh, written and a mortal girl falls in love with the immortal, now immortal vampire. And in order that they could share their love forever, she wants to become a vampire. He tries to warn her off, of course, and if you can guess in the end, she becomes a vampire so that they could be forever. What's the point? Did Jesus, when he became a human being, just lay aside his God qualities forever and just become one of us completely? He just like signed off and said, I don't have these powers anymore. And now I'm going to become a human being, kind of like the Little Mermaid who signed off with, I can't think of the evil octopus type uh, witch that took her. So she became immortal, but she didn't have her voice, right? So she's no longer a mermaid. She lost that quality because she was in love with Eric the prince. That is not how it happened because we see that in 1 John 5.20. So this is uh, written by the same man who wrote John that we read about earlier, about the Logos. And it's the same one who writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. In fact, the same guy who writes the book of Revelation. But this is what he writes. Keep in mind that Jesus has died and risen and ascended into heaven at this point. John chapter 1, verses 5, 20. Uh, chapter 5, verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So it doesn't say Jesus is now man. It doesn't say Jesus like used to be true God. Instead, it says he is true God. So currently in heaven, Jesus has a body, which is hard to fathom. And he's both true God and true man. Now you have to be careful when you describe this. You have to be careful to describe this because there's people who said it's like two boards glued together. Jesus is true man, but then glued to a board that's true God. That's not true. Um, some people have said it's like an ocean of godliness of, and then one drop of humanity. Again, the Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible simply at times says Jesus is God, at times says he is man. So what we call this big time term, the Gaius Minestaticum, which is the communication of these attributes, that somehow, some way we can't get our mind around, Jesus is both true God and true man at the exact same time. Why is it necessary, though, that Jesus is God? We, we emphasize why he had to be man. Why does he have to be God? Why couldn't, like, a human being die in our place? Hebrews 9, uh, 10, verses 9 through 10 gives us kind of a, an idea on that. It says, Jesus said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. And by that will we have made, been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And this is the key part, once for all. You and I have value. I could die in your place. You could die in my place. Maybe in some unknown court place. If someone is guilty, someone could take their place. I think there's a TV show with Tom Cruise and uh, people buy minutes. They only have so much minutes on the planet and they buy them from the poor. And it's something like that. They exchange kind of this, um, this currency of time. Jesus is true God. And that by the fact that he is God, that gives him value. And the fact that he died 
was enough value to pay for the sins of the world. So even though it's one human being, it's one human being that's also true God. So that gives that value. Yes, beyond our knowledge, but again, just because we can't fully understand it, does that mean it's not true? The answer, of course, is no. So a couple discussion questions before we finish off today. Uh, the first one is, in some parts of the world, people believe that there are many gods. That's called polytheism. Why can't we agree to say that the triune God is just one among many? So maybe you pause as you kind of think about this. Because God doesn't say he's one among many. God says, I am God. That's it. In fact, in the Bible, it says he is a jealous God, which seems strange when I was a kid. I would hear that. God is jealous. You're not supposed to be jealous. What God is saying is, listen, there is only one God. It's me. And I don't want my glory, my honor, my uh, attributes and, and rever- uh, glory to go to anybody else. Nobody. No thing. No object. No human. No kid. I am the only one who gets that godly praise. In that sense, he's jealous. In the same way, if you're married, you understand this. I am married. How many wives do I have? You should answer very quickly. I have one wife. Now, it does not matter if I talk to other people and say, this is my wife when I'm talking about someone else. It does not matter if I write letters to someone and pretend they're my wife. It does not matter if other people say someone is my wife. I only have one wife. And as such, I'm a jealous husband and she's a jealous wife in the sense that she does not want my husbandly affection to go to any other human being. She's jealous. Not jealous like lock someone in a closet. I'm not jealous like keep Amy upstairs and she's never allowed to leave the... leave her bedroom or something like that. She just stays up there like Rapunzel. But jealous in the sense that I'm her husband, we've made a commitment to each other, and I don't want that affection and love and pouring out to go to any other individual. So some people argue, don't we have, like, we all worship the same God. Well, everybody has a God. That doesn't mean it's the true God. And to use that same illustration again, I have one wife. I don't have multiple wives, and we don't all have the same wife. Everyone has their own wife, but there's only one true wife. The same thing is true. There is only one God in the whole universe. That's it. And when people worship something and they describe it as their own view, here's my God, it's no longer God. I could cuddle a teddy bear and say, this is my wife. That doesn't make it my wife. What makes it my wife is there is only one true wife, and this is the one that gets my husbandly affection. In the same way, there is only one God. There isn't six gods or four gods or one God. There isn't one God that all these different people are viewing at, because if they're worshiping someone that is not God, it's not God. Now, this is kind of sounding like it's going in a circle, but let me explain it this way. Someone who worships the Muslim faith and says, this is who I worship as God, it's Allah and he's vengeful and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or someone worships, say, the Mormon faith. This is my God who expects me to do the right things and then he will shine down and love on me. These aren't God because God describes himself in one place. We can learn about God from various places, but he fully reveals himself in one place and that's scripture. And in scripture, God says the many attributes we see. I am triune. I am loving. I am merciful. I am faithful. I'm all-powerful. I'm all-knowing. All these things make it so that when we worship God, we're worshiping the God who um, God himself describes him. God says, this is who I am. This is who you are to worship. Uh, Question two, 
Some people say that Jesus was a man who taught great things, but he was not God. How does that false idea destroy the message of the Bible? C.S. Lewis, who I've quoted a number of times, C.S. Lewis said he's kind of a famous triad, and it's a longer paragraph, but it summarized it's this. Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And a lot of people are willing to say that Jesus is a great guy. I mean, everybody loves Jesus. You're not going to get made fun of at a party if you said Jesus is awesome on your, on your shirt. It doesn't matter what kind of party it is. Because many people have respect for him as a great man. However, Jesus himself does not describe himself as a great teacher. He was a teacher, but Jesus describes himself as God. So Jesus is either cr- lying about this, he's crazy because he thinks he's God and he's not, or he actually is. Last question says, faith in Jesus and all he did for us gives us each a very precious gift. What is that gift? Of course, that gift is salvation. And it's a life with God. And it's a sense of peace here on earth to know that our greatest picture of this umbrella concept is taken care of, that God loves us through faith in him. We're going to be with him. We don't have to worry about being lost or alone or separated. And it so fills us up that we can make decisions here on earth. We can forgive people in a way as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We can love people in a way because we know that we're taken care of and we can uh, serve other people, not wanting to always get ahead on our own needs, knowing that God has already taken our needs. That is all we have. We got one, a few questions at the end, but uh, that's the end for this. I guess we call it a podcast. And the next lesson will be up when someone needs it. So right now we just got lessons, we have more lessons one and two and five. I hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you enjoy this journey as we grow in God's word and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart as he always does to build up your faith and grow closer to him.